0: This is the Life Church podcast. For more messages, to watch our live stream, or to find other events, go to LifeChurchNow.org. All right. Good morning. Good morning. There we go. Okay, we're on. Yeah, you know, uh, just uh, again, as Josh was mentioning, and we we say this often, but I just have to say that I am um, incredibly. Blessed and thankful for this uh, this community that calls himself Life Church, and for the generosity that you display. Uh, I don't. Uh, you might have heard this. We I think we did mention it before. But for example, just a couple of weeks ago, we we canceled our Sunday morning service to go ahead and, and help in Cedar Rapids. We had like fifty homes where tree, <clears throat> trees were cleared, and then. Uh, we, uh, we also gave out these $100 Hy-Vee gift cards. And uh, this all, this turnaround happened all within a week's time. We had asked you to be generous and give to help us do that. And so on that Sunday when we canceled service, I mean, I just start thinking about this, you know. Uh, typically church is known and understood as a place where you go to and you sit down and then they ask you for money. Ge-ge- very generically speaking, okay. So it's not exactly exactly how it is, but that what you did two weeks ago was like the flip side of that. You didn't come to church. You went to the city of city Rapids, and you gave away thirty-five thousand dollars to pe- people in that community. I mean, that's that is amazing, and that's why I love this church community. Because you guys are incredibly generous, you guys are not just generous with your giving, but you're generous with your time and your resources. on On that Sunday, over 200 people showed up, and uh, you know, just got mobilized throughout the city. It was fantastic. We met right there at the um, uh, the Green Square Park there next to the library in Cedar Rapids, and it was cool. There's l- a lot of uh, there's a lot of homeless people that kind of hang out in that area. You know, I don't know if they're Fully homeless or this partially homeless, but whatever the case is, that's where they hang out, and uh, and and so we were we also did a meal and it was 600 burgers and all that kind of stuff was given and and so they came and they they were fed as well and and then we had t-shirts for those who were serv- you know who were going to be part of the serve team out there and so they they lined up and they got a t-shirt as well so they're like hanging out you know in the park where they normally stay and they had their their love the 319 t-shirt anyways it was such a cool thing and it just uh, as Josh was talking about giving it reminded me of the generosity of this church community you guys are amazing um, and I love you guys for that thank you so much for your generosity and as, uh, as he also mentioned that next week we kick off our Cedar Rapids campus it goes, it goes online next week live and uh, I, I, I already saw a video of them together and so it's a Sunday morning in Cedar Rapids, and faces that we normally would see here, some of them are up there now, and so it's really, really cool to see that happening, and we couldn't have done that without your generosity as well, so we're excited about it, amen? You guys are excited? Good, good. You know, it's hard to say those kind of things these days, right? Are you excited? You know, people are like, oh, I don't know, COVID, and race, racism, and the elections, I mean, we're not excited about anything, Right, we just like dip, turn the news on and get depressed. That's what we do, you know. And so, so it's just weird to get up up here and say, "Hey, hey are you excited about that?" You know, there are things to be excited about. There are things to be thankful to God for, and uh, that's that's what we're chasing after. Amen. So, hey, we're finishing up this series uh, called Aliens. It's out of the. It's a series that we did out of the book of First uh, Peter. And essentially what we're trying to do is answer the question um, how do we as followers of Jesus Christ live out our faith in a world that seems to be increasingly hostile or increasingly marginalizing us because of our values and our and our view and our views on Scripture? So, how do we live out our faith? And that's really the question we've been answering. There's a, a missiologist and church growth researcher by the name of Ed Stetzer. He talks about the the, the the condition of the church or the the the, the place of the church in in um, or christianity in America and he says that 75% of Americans, okay, hear this, 75% of Americans self-identify as Christians. Now when I say that, it almost sounds a little bit disingenuous for me to be doing a series called Aliens. How do we live our life out in a world that seems increasingly hostile towards us? Like, it, wait a minute, those numbers don't match. If 75% of Americans claim to be Christians, and here, Rich, you're just doing a whole series on, you know, yeah, as Christians, we're really, really struggling. They don't seem to match. Well, he goes on, he kind of explains, he says, these this 75% of Americans are, cat, are in three different categories. The first one is they're cultural, congregational, and then conviction. These are three categories. Cultural, congregational, and conviction. Well, first one, cultural Christians basically would be those people who, um, who call themselves Christian because society tells them that they need to call themselves something. And they know that they're not atheists. They do believe in God. and But it's not really about a deep faith. It's more about heritage and it is about heart. You know, maybe they had a, a Baptist grandma that was beloved and because she was an amazing person, well, that's what they are. They just identify with her, you know? And and so they don't really, it's not really about beliefs or commitments that they've made. Uh, they rarely attend church. Maybe they attend church twice a year. We call them, in. it's, it's not it's a pejorative term, but call them priesters Christmas and Easter. You know, that's when they go to church, Christmas and Easter. And so basically, Ed Sester says that 25% of Americans would fall under this category of cultural Christians, and they, another 25% fall under the category of congregational Christians, similar to the cultural Christians, but the difference is that they actually there's a local church that they identify with. You know, there's a, a local church that they have some kind of connection to or roots with roots in. And so it's funny, I'm a pastor, I've been living in this city for about 15 years, and, uh, and I run into people all the time, and when they find out I'm a pastor, it, it kinda, the conversation kind of goes this way, it's like, oh, they feel compelled, you know, Pastor Rich, you're a pastor, they feel compelled to tell me, oh, I'm a member of that church, or I'm a member of that church, you know, they'll name the church, you know. And I don't know, maybe there's a little bit of a mean streak in me, I'm not trying to be mean, but... You know, I, it's like the conversation leading up to that did not reveal that you were a member of any church, you know? So, 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 uh, so, I, so I'll say something like, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, the pastor there, what's his name, what's his name? And, and you, could, you could just see it on their face. The, the, the wheels are spinning and smoke is flying out of their ears and they're trying to figure out, what's the name of that pastor? I haven't been there in 30 years, I can't remember. And then they'll throw a name out like Pastor White And I know exactly who the pastor is. I probably might have even seen him a few weeks before, you know. (laughs) And, uh, yeah, he was there 30 years ago. He was there. He's out there now, you know. Anyways, about 25% of of American population fall in this category of what we'd call congregational Christian. Then... The last 25% of Americans fall under this category of convictional Christians. And many of you, that's who you are. You're you're in this category. These are people that are striving to live according to their faith. They would say that they have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And that they are doing everything they can for that to inform how they live their life. You know, that their faith is core to what they they believe. That their faith is what... um, it's like it 's like the hub of their life where all the spokes lead to right, and so their faith informs you know their 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 finances, their politics, their relationships their sexuality their faith inform 's the lens by which they look through and so about twenty five percent of american society Americans fall in this category of convictional christians now what we 're seeing in our culture these days is that the number of cultural and congregational Christians, those first two categories, these two right here, the number of cultural and congregational Christians since the late 50s, early 60s has been declining. So you'll find, if you read articles, which I do, and you probably don't because you don't have to, but I do, read articles about, you know, the place of the church in in American society or in Western civilization, you'll find that many articles talk about how the church in Western society is declining, The church is going backwards, you know, and we read these articles over and over again and a lot of them is referring to cultural and congregational Christians that are, that truthfully they are on the decline. The numbers are going down and the reason why they're going down is because in our culture we're experiencing so much um, pushback and marginalization in terms of the things that we've held on to in the past that many of these cultural Christians and congregational Christians who really don't have, they haven't really... They haven't really, the reason that they're going to church or even call themselves a Christian is because of, there's there's no inherent reason for it. Because of that, it's just not as popular anymore to say, yeah, I'm a Christian. It's not as helpful anymore to say, I'm a Christian. It doesn't make any sense anymore. If everybody around you is pushing back on it, it doesn't make any sense. So these are kind of declining. But convictional Christians, what we see is, statistically speaking, they're not necessarily skyrocketing but they're but they're maintaining at a steady pace of growth. And what Ed Sitzer would say to that is that the church is not dying off. The church is simply being more clearly defined. That really what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ is to be a convictional Christian. A person who is who is allowing their relationship with Jesus Christ to inform every aspect of their life. That's what it means to be a convictional Christian. And it's not a bad thing, right? It's something that we long for. In fact, it's, it, it, even though it seems difficult, even though it seems like, like the ch- if there's a lot of pushback towards the church, it's like gold being refined. And as gold gets refined, you, get to, you begin to shine more brightly, and so we, I love, I love the fact that I am pastoring a church in this time period. I love it. Even though many would say, let's just run to the hills, let's find, you know, let's go up in the mountains of Idaho and just escape all this stuff. I love the fact that I am pastoring a church in this season because it allows us to shine more brightly for him. It allows us to be actually witnesses in a, in a, in a world that is being much more clearly defined, I love the fact that I'm getting the pastor in this season. Now when I say shine brightly, what I'm not talking about is cultural war. I'm not talking about demanding that non-Christians start living like Christians. That's not what I'm talking about, that's a cultural war. What I'm talking about is us as the church of Jesus Christ becoming what we were always meant to be a rescue station a rescue station for people whose lives have fallen on the rocks of hard of of, of hard times. They've they've be, they've become shipwrecked, oftentimes for the because of the choices that they made and the things that they've done. And I mean, instead of out standing at the shores and looking at them and cursing them and saying, "Why you see what your mistake?" No, that's not what we're supposed to be. We're supposed to be on the shore as they are coming into into shore rescue them rescuing them from the rocks that they've crashed into that's what we are that's what the church of jesus christ is meant to be that's what a convictional christian is meant to be so we have this opportunity to live out our faith in two ways in a convictional way by conviction and also by compassion We have these convictions. We have these values that we hold to. And yes, those values are being challenged more and more and more. But also, by the same token, we have this this call of Jesus Christ to be compassionate to those who are lost and hurting and broken. So as followers of Jesus Christ, we have this amazing opportunity to live with conviction and with compassion. We're not going to be the church that because of COVID-19 or because of you know, racial injustice or because of, uh, of, you know, political year and the election year, presidential election year, that we're going to be just losing our minds and saying the sky's fallen, the sky has fallen, the sky has fallen. That's not the church that we're going to be. We're going to be the church that's going to run with joy and with a, with a positive attitude, and our message is not going to be that the sky is falling. Our message is going to be that Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back. Jesus is the savior of the world. Jesus is the one that can set you free. Jesus is the one that can heal your life. Jesus is the one that can restore you. That's our message. Not that the sky is fallen. That's the church that we're supposed to be. So Peter knows this. Peter understands this about, him, about us. He understands that about himself. He understands about the people he's speaking to and he's challenging them to be prepared because he knows what it's like to be persecuted and not prepared. The apostle Peter, he knows it. He knows what it's like to sit at the feet of Jesus and Jesus say, hey, Peter, you're gonna deny me, and Peter's like, not me, I will never, ever, ever deny you. And then a few hours later, three times, he denies Jesus. Peter remembers going into the Garden of Gethsemane and Jesus is about to get arrested and he, and it's like Peter has his brain fart or something. He forgets all the teachings of Jesus and he pulls his sword out and he lops the ear off of a soldier. That Jesus then has to heal him and tell Peter, put your sword away. He knows, he understands clearly what it's like to experience persecution to experience marginalization and not be ready for it. So Peter wants these these Christians that he's talking to, to be ready. Be ready for what's ahead. So in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1, he says, So then, since Christ suffered physical pain, you must also arm yourself with the same attitude he had and be ready to suffer too. He gives us some readiness words. He says, he says uh, arm yourself. That can be translated, prepare yourself. And be ready... To suffer too. In other words, the implication here is that it hasn't actually fully happened yet, but it will happen. So you need to to be preparing yourself. This is what Peter's telling this church. Be prepared. Be prepared. Be prepared for what? To suffer. And how are we going to do that? We're going to do it with the same attitude that Jesus had. Have the same attitude that Jesus had. So instead of, you know, instead of being in this hostile world and and you know, fighting back and trading insult with insult or, you know, going on social media and ranting in all caps. What we're gonna do is we're gonna trade insult for blessing and let God be the judge. Verse 12, 1 Peter 4, he says, dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trials you're going through. Don't be surprised, okay? Be prepared, translate that don't, don't be surprised at the fiery trials you're going through as if someone stra- as, as if something strange were happening to you like the trials are not strange they're just expected Peter's making it very clear here, as if something strange is happening to instead, be very glad, for these trials make you partners with Christ in suffering, so that you will, you, so you will have the wonderful joy of seeing his glory when it's revealed in all of the world. So Peter's basically saying, hey, don't be surprised, be prepared. You know, some of you may be in this room, and I know that people that we know, there's maybe some of you that are watching online, you've experienced some tragedy, You've gone through some hard times. There's some of you that I know that have gone through some really, really hard times. The lost people you love. The thing about tragedy is that when tragedy happens, most often, if not almost always, it happens and we weren't ready for it. We weren't expecting it. We didn't think it was gonna happen. Like I'm totally healthy and I go to the doctor and he says, sorry, it's stage four. Whoa, what? And that's really the difficulty of of these things in our life, is that we were not expecting them. And I think that's what Peter's trying to tell these guys. Hey, look, hard times are coming. Don't be surprised by it. Be prepared for it. Be prepared for it. How do you prepare for it? Well, you remember that Jesus is coming back. You remember that this world is not your home. You remember that you're just pilgrims. You're just aliens passing through. That's how you prepare for it. So be ready. Be ready. I want you to imagine if, could, imagine if I could tell the future. I'm going to pick on Robbie. Sorry, Robbie. And, and I, I, could, I could see the future, and I know that, Robbie, six months from now, man, you're going to fall on hard times, dude. You're going to lose your job. Your house is going to be foreclosed on. You're, uh, they're going to repossess all your cars. And it's going to suck. I'm sorry. It's going to stink. <laughs> That's probably what I would have said to Robbie if I was just having a conversation with him. Sorry, guys. <clears throat> but then I could see the future. And I know that in two years, you have that rich uncle. You haven't really seen in a long time. And that rich uncle's going to put you in his will, and he's going to, and you're going to, in two years, not six months, but in two years, you're going to inherit multi-million dollar inheritance. Doesn't, it make that, doesn't that make a difference when I look at my circumstances? When I look at the circumstances that I may lose my job, that I may lose my house, I may lose my cars. If that felt, if that was, if I felt that that was the end, that was the end then yeah, it's just terrible. But, but if I knew that just in a couple of years, my rich uncle is going to leave me all the money I can, I, I, I can ever spend in a the life, then it makes a difference for me. I'm able to wait it out. I'm able to persevere through it because it makes a difference. And I think this is essentially what Peter's saying. In fact, he even uses the same language. He uses the word Inheritance. He says, you're going to be suffering. You're going to be struggling. You're going to go through this very difficult season. But there is an inheritance waiting for you in heaven. Your hope is not in this world. Your hope is in heaven. And it's secure for you. And by knowing this, we're able to face the difficulties of life with with a joyful spirit. And that's really our perspective that we should have. That it's beyond this place that we're in. That this world is not my home. That's what Peter's been telling him. A few years ago, uh, maybe 10 years ago, uh, when Life Church we were in North Liberty, I remember. Um, I remember it, one sp- specific Sunday. This couple walks in. And we started having a nice conversation, you know, I was always at that time, especially when we were a much smaller church, I was always like very welcoming and wanted to talk to people. And I mean, I've always been welcoming, but I mean, I was just talking to everybody, you know, so I would meet people in the lobby and we're having these conversations. So I met this couple and we had a very nice conversation, very cordial, very, you know, no alarms, nothing, everything was great. They attended Life Church for several months, you know, and then they just, I didn't see them anymore. And, you know, that, that happens. People come and they figure things out. And they're like, yeah, this is really not my church community. I want to go somewhere else. So they go somewhere else. That, oh, not offended by that. Um, but a few months later, I discovered that, that somebody was out there. I didn't know who the somebody was at, at that point. But somebody was out there talking about me. Or kind of spreading rumors about Pastor Rich. And they were saying that Pastor Rich, emphatically, they said it like emphatically, like they knew this as factual evidence, that Pastor Rich voted for a particular presidential candidate. Now, you, anybody who knows me knows that I don't have those conversations with people. Okay? Christy has to dig it out of me to find out who I'm voting for. My, my wife, right? And so, and so I knew that that was false, there's no way this person knew who I might have voted for, and I knew that. First of all, secondly, that the information was actually false, and yet they were spreading this. They were talking about it, and they were kind of maligning me, and by virtue of maligning me, trying to malign the church and saying all kinds of stuff. You know, and be honest with you, I, that doesn't feel good. I was, I was kind of angry. I wanted to set the record straight. I wanted to. Clear, ups, the, clear up what was being said and, and confront this person. That's how I was feeling, you know. It, was, it never feels good to be talked about. It never feels good to be on the receiving end of anything like that. And it's during this time that this message of Peter really became so incredibly relevant, relevant for me. Where Peter says in chapter 3, he says, don't trade insult for insult. We're so good at that, aren't we? Maybe not. Don't trade insult for insult, but instead leave it in the hands of God. He goes on to say in 1 Peter 4.14, he says, If you're insulted because you bear the name of Christ, in other words, here's why you would be insulted, because you bear the name of Christ, I guess the right reason, right? You bear the name of Christ, you will be blessed. For the glorious spirit of God rests upon you. That when you are insulted for the right reasons, it carries blessing in your life. And that we should have a kind of a perspective change when we we recognize that people are assaulting us and really it's for the right reasons that they're assaulting us. That when we live faithfully for Christ, if that brings you reproach, then you should count it as a blessing. Um, After the Supreme Court ruling on same-sex marriage in 2015, there was this ethicist and uh, theologian by the name of Russell Moore. He published an article... Um, and, he, and he published an article, and he made a statement. He said, the church, talking about the church, the bigger church, the church must be prepared for the refugees from the sexual revolution. Meaning, as the culture continues to move away from God, as the culture continues to move away from the values that we hold, as cultural Christians and congregational Christians keep falling away, falling away, falling away, that what's gonna happen is there's gonna be a lot of people that are gonna make choices in life that they think, they feel, they really do feel like this is the right thing for me. This is what will make me happy. This is what will satisfy me. This is what's gonna fulfill me. They'll, they'll walk in that direction. And then what what he's trying to say, what Russell Moore's trying to say is that as time plays itself out, they'll discover that this is not really bringing the fulfillment that they were searching for. It's not bringing the happiness that they were searching for. You and I understand that. How many times have... Well, don't raise your hand, but how many times have you made a, you, you made a choice? You said, I'm going to do this because I want to. You know, you know this is not a good thing. You know you shouldn't walk down that path. You know that this is, biblically speaking, sin. You should not do it, but you convince yourself that this is the right thing to do. And you have all kinds of rationale for it. I know I've done it. And then at the end of that journey, I realize, wow, that, that was a mistake. Why did I do that? Whether it was small and just had minimal impact or maybe larger and it had maximum impact where it breaks your family apart or it, it you know, causes you to be disconnected from your own kids or your parents. We've all done this. And so what Russell was saying is that we need to be prepared for the refugees from the sexual revolution. He goes on, there are two sorts of churches that will not be able to reach the sexual revolution refugees. Two churches that will not be able to reach them. A church that has given up on the truth of Scripture and has nothing to say to a fallen world. That there's a church that has decided to remove the tension between conviction and compassion. There's a tension there between conviction and compassion. The things that you hold on to and then your compassion for those who are hurting and longing for something more. There's a tension. And when the church chooses to remove that tension... Then we just basically go with the flow. We do whatever culture says. Whatever everybody else feels like, that's where we're going to go. That's what we're going to do. And what he's saying is that those churches really don't have have nothing of real value to offer to people that are hurting. The other church is that church that screams with outrage at those who disagree. That's a church that trades insult for insult. Talked about it last week, remember? That's, a, that's, the, that's the Christian who takes his Ten Commandments lawn yard, his yard ornament, you know, puts it in the front yard and says, okay, I dare you to refute my Ten Commandments, you know, and, and then once he sees his neighborhood as his battleground, trades insult for insult. We live in a world that really is a battlefield, guys. It really is a battlefield. That's the world that we live in. But it's a battlefield, not because those people are our enemies, it's a battlefield because the enemy of our soul wants to destroy your life. And he wants to destroy the lives of people around you. The enemy of our soul. That's who wants to do it. And so we need to be careful that we don't go into the world thinking that they are our enemy with guns blazing. Instead, I like, I have a quote in my Bibles, most of my Bibles from William Booth, he's the founder of the Salvation Army. And He says this, some are content within the sound of church or chapel bell, but I want to build a rescue station within a yard from hell. What he's saying here, if William Booth were alive, living today in our culture, he would tell, he would affirm the fact that this is a battlefield that we're in. There is certainly a war that's happening, battles raging, that's for sure. But what he would say is, as followers of Jesus Christ, instead of going into the battle with guns blazing, as followers of Jesus Christ, we need to go into the battle as medics, as rescue workers, as people who find those who are hurting and broken, broken because of the battle that they're in as well, and rescues them and brings them in so they can find healing Peter just affirms this whole thing of our real enemy. First Peter five eight and nine he says, "Stay alert, watch out for your great enemy, the devil." He defines the enemy. Okay, your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Stand firm against him and be strong in your faith. So he reminds us that the, the that there is an enemy. The enemy is real, but don't confuse the enemy. The enemy is not your your you know your Family member who makes fun of you because you go to church. That's not your enemy, right? Your enemy is not, not, not your professor who, who, who mocks your faith in class. Your enemy is not your co-worker who, who you know takes jabs at you because you have certain moral standards that they don't have. That's not your enemy. See, the enemy of our soul, well, he would want more than anything else, is for you to think. As a Christian, that your enemy are those who are outside the church. That's who your enemy is. But that's not our enemy. Our enemy, our enemy is Satan himself. And that we need to be prepared to, you know, be prepared for this, right? We cannot get this confused. We cannot get this wrong. Peter's challenging the church to be prepared for these things. So the first part of what he tells talks to us here in this latter part of 1 Peter is as a church, we need to be ready. So the question is, are you ready, right? You may not be experiencing persecution. You may not be experiencing trouble. You may, you may be looking at your bank account thinking, man, everything's great. But the question is, are you prepared, okay? He also challenges, Peter does, he also challenges on being prayerful, being prayerful. That when we experience trouble, when we experience persecution, when we experience difficulties, we are reminded of our utter dependence upon God through prayer. Isn't that right? I mean, I know, I know, it's, you know, Pastor, can you pray for me? And I'm, of course I can, of course I will. But I never get those, can you pray for me because everything's going great? <laughs> it's generally, can you pray for me because everything really stinks? And I need help. And it's all falling apart. And so as a church, we need to be prayerful because we are utterly dependent upon God. Some of the most powerful prayer words I know are leaders who are serving and working in, in countries where there's persecution, like my f- friend, pastor friend, Asa Cain. He's a man of God that spends time with Jesus, and it's because he's utterly dependent upon God. And that's what I guess I'm challenging all of us to be, is to be utterly dependent on God, that it drives us to our knees, it drives us to prayer. Verse 7 of chapter 4, he says, the end of the world is coming soon. So the end is coming soon. Therefore, this is a kind of a conditional word so or transitional word. Since the end of the world is coming soon, therefore, be earnest and disciplined in your prayers. Since the end of the world is happening, then we need to be praying even more. We need to be seeking his face even more. Towards the end of 1 Peter here, Peter kind of calls them back to prayer again, and then he says this really powerful thing to, these, to this church of suffering in verse 7 of chapter 5. He says, give all your worries and cares to God, for he cares about you. Do you believe that? I mean, seriously, as we are going through the season that we're going through, and we're all facing it in different ways, do you believe that God cares for you? He cares for you. I think that oftentimes we're kind of like Christian atheists. We kind of walk around. We have certain things that we hold on to, but we don't actually really believe that God actually cares. He does care for you. He cares for you. And so you might be in a very bumpy road right now. It's very uncomfortable. Things are really, really not good. But you need to walk away with this idea that God cares for you. I love the language that Peter uses here because it reminds me of being a dad, you know, or, the, or a mother, you know. I'm, obviously, I don't, I'm, don't remember being a mother, but I do remember being a dad. <laughs> right? It's like this language of care, right? You know, dads out there, you remember your sons or daughters saying, Daddy, can you carry me? Can you carry me? It's this idea of care. Daddy, can you carry me? Or can you carry this for me? This is too heavy for me. It's too hard for me. Can you carry this for me? My grandsons like, love to do that. you know. Hey, pick up your toy. Oh, no, you, you pick it up. That's what they say. They want me to carry it, right? Now, I, I, you know, I don't remember much anymore of carrying my, my kids anymore because they're a lot older. They're in their 30s and late 20s now. But, um, but it's happening with my grandkids some. But I do remember a very specific moment. This is many years ago. Uh, We were living in Bangladesh. At that time, we had three boys, and um, my daughter wasn't born yet. And my oldest, Jonathan, right there, who's 31 now, um, was just like four or five years old. And um, he was the only one going to school. And then I had Josh, who was like three, and then Gabriel, who was like one. And uh, I remember... This particular day was it must have been a really really difficult day, and not difficult like in difficult, but just you know they were tired. They they played all day long, you know, and it was getting bedtime, so. And, you know, trying to rally these kids up and get all their toys together was just kind of difficult. So I said to Jonathan, hey, Jonathan, grab your toys, go to your room. We're going to bed. So he did, and went to his room. I'm picking up Gabriel, who was the baby, and and I'm gathering toys for him, and I'm taking him to the room as well. And I could see across the room my son Josh, my middle son, sitting on this chair. We actually have a picture of it, but I don't have it to display. But he's sitting on this chair with no shirt on, diaper on, and a pacifier in his mouth. And he's like three years old. And he's sitting there and he's just, it's like one of these kind of chairs, but with these armrests, and he's just kind of like dozing off, you know, dozing off on the chair. He's just tired. They're, they're exhausted, right? And so he's dozing off and I see that across the room. So I, I evidently we must've thought it was cute. We took a picture of it, but right, we have a picture of it. So she's looking at me like, I think we have a picture of it. Um, and so, so I go across the room and I say to Josh, hey, Josh, it's bedtime. Why don't you, why don't you just pick up your toys and go to bed? And Josh, with his pacifier in his mouth, he just pushes it aside a little bit and says, I'm tired. Like, yeah, I know, I know you're tired. Let's go to bed. He said, and then he said this, can you carry me? Now, honestly, you know, Josh is kind of a little hefty boy. He's three. It's not like he's nine months or a year. Plus, I have my hands full with toys. So it was like not really something I wanted to do, but I I did. I reached down, I scooped him up and took him into his room and I had my arms full of toys and and my son Josh and I took him into his room and here's the deal, that's okay. As a dad, it's okay for me every once in a while to carry some of the burdens of my own kids. As a dad, it's okay every once in a while when they, they just can't do it themselves anymore to carry them as well. And I think that really Peter is trying to convey that same image to those of us here today. That probably over the last six months, you've been beat up. Personally, or more just a part of our society and our culture, just generally, you've been beat up. And you're worn out. And you're tired. And it's uncomfortable. And 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 society and culture and everybody's trying to tell you you gotta have the right thinking and you have to say the right things, you have to do the right things, and you just more and more pressure of that's happening. You're just feeling the pressure. You're feeling the pressure. And maybe this is a good moment to say, Daddy, will you carry me? Daddy, will you carry me? I can't this is more than I can handle. I need you to carry me. And I believe that our Heavenly Father would. Amen. Let's all stand. As a church, as a pastor of this church, I would challenge you to live lives of conviction and lives of compassion and try to keep that tension as much as you can. As a pastor of this church and as a father as well, I would say, hey, listen, but if you're feeling beat up, if you're struggling, don't relieve the tension. Don't start just basically doing whatever everybody else does, because everybody else is doing it. Don't start shouting from the mountaintop that, you know, everybody's wrong, it's just a liberal agenda, and blah, it's all so bad. Don't do that. It's really the most appropriate moment to say, God. I can't do this by myself. I need you to carry me. I need you to help me through this and keep our focus on him because after all, this is not our home. This is not our home. We're aliens. We're just passing through. Amen. Let me pray for you. Father, I just want to thank you first and foremost, God, because you are our father. The same way I have been the father of four children and there's been moments where I was disappointed and said things I shouldn't have said, but by and large, Father, I'm proud of my children. I love my children. I care for my children. And if that's me, Father, then I know that you as our heavenly Father, you care for us. That you see us, each one individually, exactly where we are. You know everything about us. You know the things that we're struggling through. You know the challenges we're facing at work. You know the challenges we're facing at home. You know the challenges we're facing in our finances. You know the challenges we're facing in every area of our life. You know us, Father. And you simply just want to speak to us through the Apostle Peter that you are our loving Heavenly Father who cares. So Father, today we just simply resign ourselves to you. We don't relieve the tension. We live with our convictions. We live with compassion. But Jesus, we just simply give ourselves over to you. We need you, Daddy, to carry us. Help us, Father. Help us. Today, Father, as I pray, Lord, I just ask that you will just do a miraculous work, that your presence will be so real right now in the hearts of every individual in this room that as we leave this building today, Father, we leave with a renewed faith and a renewed confidence that this world is not our home, that we have a home that's an inheritance for us, that no matter what's happening in society, no matter what's happening in the media, no matter what's happening in our culture, we do not have to be fazed by it because we belong to you, Jesus. We are yours. We thank you, Jesus. I pray, God, that you will just do exactly that in each and every heart, I pray in Jesus' name.